And if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians, and chapter 2, we'll take up a reading in verse 5. This is God's Word. Please take heed how you hear. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, the exact size and shape of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto with a tight fist, but emptied himself by taking the form, the exact size and shape and significance of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human scheme, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God, and it endures forever. Well, there is no more divisive figure in all human history than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is neutral when it comes to Jesus. No one can be. You're either for Him or you're against Him. You either trust Him or you do not. You either receive Him or you reject Him. Either you love Him or you hate Him. There is no middle ground. C.S. Lewis hit the nail squarely on the head, as only Lewis can, when he said those famous words, speaking about people who think about Christ. He's just a moral teacher, a great man, you know. And he says, I'm trying to hear to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Oh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept Him to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to you. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me, Lewis says, that he was either a lunatic, he was neither, sorry, a neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So what do you think of Jesus this morning? How are you responding to his claim? That is one question. Another question, often unanswered and unasked, but how is Jesus, what does Jesus think of you this morning? I often ask people, have you received Jesus? But the greater question is, has Jesus Christ received you this morning? 
And whatever you think of Jesus Christ today, our text this morning describes what you will think of Him and how you will respond to Him on the last great day of judgment. When Paul says, every sinner and every saint, every sage, every scholar, every pauper, every prince, every great man, every poor man, every poor lady, every diva, every king, every president, every angel of heaven, every demon in hell, will bow the knee before Jesus and confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of us will do that with joy, gladly submitting to Christ the capstone of a life of bowing the knee to Jesus in our mind, in our affections, in our choices, in our lifestyle, again and again, not, not, perfe- not perfectly, but purposefully, not sinlessly, but sincerely, we have endeavored by the grace of God to bow the knee to Jesus and say, less of me, more of Him. And for some of us, on that last great day, when we bow the knee to Jesus, it'll be the capstone of a life of bowing the knee to Jesus. For the rest of you this morning, when you bow your knee at the last day, some of you will be filled with regret, others with anger and bitterness, others with incredulity. How could you have been so stupid to spend your life going in the wrong direction, serving the wrong master, worshiping the wrong Lord, getting the meaning of life wrong on such a colossal level? When you bow your knee to Christ on that last day, your bowing will represent the capstone of a life that you spent resisting and rejecting the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, one way or another, in sunshine or in shadow, gladly or sorrowfully, you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and you will see, and you will confess to to your eternal joy or your eternal sorrow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, my sermon, my, my, my question to you this morning is quite simply this. If you will bow the knee to Jesus on that day, and you will, why not bow the knee to Jesus today? Why not yield the allegiance of your soul to Christ? I'm not speaking about just, you know, the kind of quick genuflection people do when they enter a cathedral or a church and bow toward the, um, the altar or the, the quick crossing of themselves that you'll see, police or that you'll see football, footballers do at the World Cup when they enter as a substitute or taking a penalty, quick north, south, east, and west, just a quick, you know, hoping that Christ will somehow control the outcome of a soccer game, the bounce of a soccer ball, the dive of a goalkeeper. No, I'm talking about yielding your life lock, stock, and two smoking barrels to Jesus Christ, submitting to Him, accepting His claims, worshiping His his, uh, person, observing His teaching and seeking to follow it and to obey His commands. I'm speaking about embracing a whole Christ. He's here this morning offering Himself to you in totality as Savior and Lord. You can't receive a half Christ. 
You can't take him as Savior and not Lord. You take him as a whole Christ, or you don't take him at all. You take him as um, Savior and Lord, and you bow your knee to him as Savior and Lord, or you cannot and you will not bow your knee to him at all. The other option isn't open to you. So the question this morning in our sermon is quite simply this, why should you bow the knee to Jesus? I want to give you three reasons. First of all, there is no higher king. Secondly, there is no better name, no one better to serve in life, no better master, no better name, and there is no other Lord. No higher king, no better name, no other Lord. First of all, I want you to see there is no higher king than Jesus, therefore you should bow your knee to him. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. Now, we're going to come back to the word therefore later. But notice here, first of all, that you should bow your knee to Jesus because God literally has hyper-exalted him. That's what the Greek word is, hyper-exalted. He super-exalted him. God has put Jesus Christ above the pinnacle of created existence. There is no one else above him. Everything else is beneath him. God has given Jesus a place that is proper to God and to God alone. If you turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah, you'll see that prophesied in Isaiah 57, verse 15. Um, God speaks of Himself, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God is the most high. He dwells in a high and holy place, and that is where God has put Jesus. He's hyper-exalted him. He couldn't exalt him anymore. It's the place that King Uzziah, whenever Isaiah saw in that year that King Uzziah died, you remember that, that amazing contrast, an empty throne in Jerusalem, and he's there ministering in the temple. Uzziah is dead. He looks up, and God shows him another throne, which is very far from empty. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Now, John, in John chapter 12 of his gospel, you can look at that later, he says that Isaiah said this not when he saw God's glory, the Father's glory, but when he saw the Son's glory, Christ's glory. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Notice Isaiah does not try to explain the, the appearance of Jesus. He's, he is beyond description. He can describe the throne, its location. He can describe the attendants around the throne. He can describe the robe that Christ is wearing, but he doesn't give you any words to describe Christ himself because there are no words big enough, good enough, or great enough to describe the way Christ appears on the throne. He's indescribable. Like, could you, t could you describe for me the taste of butter this morning? All you could say is it doesn't taste like margarine. I can believe it's not butter, right? But you couldn't describe the taste of butter. If you can't describe the taste of butter, you couldn't describe the taste of 
or the, the, the sight of God. And Isaiah can't. Above him stood the seraphim, the blazing angels. The seraph is the, means the burning ones in the Hebrew. These angelic spirits created to worship and live in the incandescent presence of God's glory. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, 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 the threefold emphasis, which is the greatest emphasis in the Hebrew. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then in Isaiah 52, verse 13, remember Isaiah 52 and 53 contains the fourth climactic servant song. These songs that speak of the servant in Isaiah, who's a mystical figure. He's as small as a baby, but he's as big as God. And it's very confusing for the Jews reading these words and wondering who could this be. Well, the, the last climactic sermon song that speaks about Christ being numbered with the transgressors and being wounded for our transgressions, and all we like sheep have gone astray and so forth, and the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him, that last servant song begins just before we go over into the depths of the cross and Golgotha's darkness. Isaiah says, you must remember where he goes after his sufferings. And he says, God says to Isaiah, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall know exactly the right thing to do at the right time in the right way for the right reason and to the right ends. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The threefold exaltation. High, lifted up, exalted. That's who the servant is. He's given a place proper for God alone. There is no one above Jesus. Everything else in all creation is beneath Him. God has established His throne far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Everything else is beneath Him. In other words, if you are not serving Jesus Christ this morning, you are spending your precious life on secondary or tertiary things at the very best. If you're spending your life serving your wife, or serving your husband, or serving your children, or serving your job, or serving yourself, those things should be high on your agenda. Your wife is high on the agenda, your husband, your children, but they're not most high. Christ is most high. And if you aren't serving, you aren't bowing the knee to Jesus, you're getting the meaning of life wrong at a colossal level. There is no higher throne. God Himself has highly exalted Him. Secondly, we see that there is no better name, no better person to serve. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name, not a name, but the name that is above every name. What is the name that's above every name? It's the name of God. Only God's name is above every other name. Here God is publicly investing the man Christ Jesus with the very name of God Himself. Now, perhaps this morning you have a rather cynical attitude towards Jesus Christ. 
And perhaps you're saying, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? I mean, if Jesus is God, as you Christians claim He is God, uh, how can God exalt God? That doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. And um, you're, you're kind of channeling your inner trump. It's just so, so dumb, so dumb. And, um, and how can God give God the name of God? doesn't make any sense. Now, the answer is found in the word therefore. We'll come back to that later. Just bookmark that a second. But I want to respond to that objection. And there's a number of things to say. First of all, you need to realize, okay, smarty pants, this is not a new objection, right? People have been raising that objection for a very long time, and we call them theological liberals, and they came from Germany, which is a little better than coming from France, but not much better. Um, 19th century. And these German liberals were trying to, like, slammer people following after him, they were trying to rescue Christianity. If ever you try to rescue the Redeemer, you're in trouble. But they were trying to rescue Christianity from scientists who were saying, well, we know God didn't make the world in six days because he, he exploded into existence by itself, right, and things like that. And we know that there's no supernatural things because we've never seen them happen. Nature's the whole show. And these liberals tried to rescue Christianity from being torn apart by these anti-supernatural scientists like Darwin and others, right? And so what these liberals did was they stripped Christianity of all of its supernatural miracles and got back to essentially the essence they thought, which was be a nice person. And so if you strip Christianity of all of its supernatural stuff, what do you do with Jesus? Well, you leave Jesus basically as a great man, maybe the greatest man who ever lived. But at the end of the day, Jesus, in their mind, is simply and only a great human being, right? Now, these are scholars, and you have to get a PhD. You've got to sign intelligence. What, how did they kind of justify this? Well, they'll take the four Gospels. They'll say, you know, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all look at Jesus through the same eye, from the same perspective. And the synoptic Gospels, and they're right, do present us a much more down-to-earth Jesus than John's Gospel. John's Gospel is full of these claims of Christ being Yahweh and the great I Am and so forth and so on. And what they say is that the synoptic gospels are giving you more a picture of the real Jesus. He's just a man. And then John's gospel, the fourth gospel, um, John is trying to kind of give a bit of a supercharge, nitrous oxide, you know, kick to the church as she's running out of steam toward the end of the first century. And he's giving a much more divine picture of Jesus um, to kind of impress people and give the church more traction. That's the the stick, right? And they'll say, Paul believed this as well. So, these are apostles who live in Rome, ancient Rome times, and the Romans believed that great men could become God, and so they borrowed a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they take Jesus, who died on the cross, defeated, but they make up this new story of Him raising again. It's a myth, they said, but He's raised again at least in our minds, in our ministries, he's raised again, and he, he is now the Son of God in heaven. And they say Christ never claimed that, but they kind of stuck that on to Christ. 
And we'll say every so often the Apostle Paul will let his theological slip show. Now, that's maybe an Irish term. Slip is your pantyhose or your ladies, the kind of the silky thing you wear beneath your dress that you do want people to see. And if sometimes your dress is hitched up maybe and people can see your slip or your whatever you call that thing here. And um, people say, fix your dress. Well, they'll say that sometimes Paul lets his theological slip show. Like in Romans 1, turn there a second with me. Right. Paul, Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was, notice, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Ah, so what they're saying is, see, here's Paul kind of letting his, um, his true thoughts being shown, that Christ became the Son of God. He was declared the Son of God. He wasn't the Son of God before on earth. He was the Son of God only when he was raised from the dead, which of course never happened, they say, as he's entering the heavens. Now, that is one way of interpreting the opening verses of the book of Romans. There is a rather, um, well, there are actually two significant problems. The first is the rest of the book of Romans, and the second is the rest of the book of Romans. Now, if you're paying attention, you realize that's the same objection mentioned twice, but it's such a big one, I thought it was worth mentioning twice. If you read the rest of the book of Romans, you understand that whatever Paul meant in Romans 1, he did not mean that Christ became the Son of God only after his resurrection. Like three places. Look forward with me at Romans 5 verse 10. (coughs) Who was it who died? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life, by the death of His Son. Not the one who had become His Son, but the one who already was His Son. Forward three chapters to Romans 8. Who, whom, who did God send into this world? Romans 8 verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By doing what? By sending His own Son. That's what makes the gospel such a stupendous message. The one God sent wasn't destined to become His Son. The one God sent was His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in his flesh. And then whom did God not spare? Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son. No, Paul's whole theology is based on the fact that the one God sent was his son. 
And it's constant through all of Paul's writings, Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So what does Paul mean then, Romans 1, verse 4, when he says he was declared to be the Son of God with power? That's the key word, with power. Donna McLeod is just, there's, there's nobody better. Well, Apostle Paul's better. But Donald McLeod is just so, when it comes to the person of Christ, he's just fantastic. The contrast here in Romans 1 is not between a time when he was son and a time when he was not son, but between a time when he was son in weakness and a time when he became son with power. In his earthly life, he was the son humiliated to all outward appearance, a mere man, homeless and friendless, without power or influence. But now he is transfigured, regnant, and preeminent. The resurrection marks not his adoption, but his investiture, his coronation in our flesh as God the Son. He'd been God the Son from all eternity, but he, in one sense he laid that glory aside or covered that glory over to become a mere man on the earth, not by subtraction but by addition. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, not by losing the form of God. Remember two sermons ago. But on earth he was in our nature the servant in weakness, but in his resurrection he was declared to be the Son with power. Father, restore to me, he says in John 17, the glory that I had with you before the world was. Well, okay, you say to me, what about the synoptic gospels? You kind of, you mentioned that at the beginning, and then you skipped over and didn't make any answer to it at all. What, what about the synoptic gospels? Well, it would take a Sunday school class at least a semester long to go into the synoptic gospels in full measure. But let me give you one passage, Matthew eleven twenty-five. Now remember, Matthew 11 is the passage where Christ is lamenting the rejection of his ministry by the cities of Capernaum and Chorazin. And he's sad. And it's a wonderful picture of um, Stuart Elliott said in a glorious sermon he preached at the Banner of Truth Conference a few years ago on how do you respond when people reject your ministry? And he had three points. He said, first of all, point your finger. Woe to you, Chorazin and Capernaum. If the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. You did not. Woe to you. Point your finger. Then secondly, he said, bow your knee. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. And then thirdly, he says, open your arms. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Christ ministered when people rejected him. But notice verse 25 in the prayer. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Notice a number of things here quickly. First of all, Jesus calls God Father, and that's significant. 
The Jews were in no doubt to call God your father was blasphemous. Remember John 5, 18? This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, Christ calls God his father. Secondly, Jesus isn't just called a son of God. He calls himself the son of God. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. He's the Son, par excellence. Thirdly, Jesus claims unique knowledge of God. He says no one knows the Father except the Son, that His knowledge of God exceeds the knowledge of God of all the Old Testament prophets. What Christ is saying here is that He knows God He knows all of the fullness of God. He knows all there is to know about God, even more than the angels know about God and the demons know about God. He knows it all. He alone knows God as He really is. And then fourthly, Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. That's a stupendous claim. Listen again to Donald MacLeod. What is emphasized here is not merely the historical fact that no one recognized Jesus as God's Son, but the theological truth that no one can recognize Him. His identity is a mystery known only to God. His glory, a depth, penetrable only to omniscience. The Son of God is a being of such complexity that God alone can fathom and understand Him. No one knows the Son except the Father. Oh, and this, is, this is the synoptic gospel where they say Jesus didn't seem to be God. Fifthly, Jesus turns to the world, the whole world. Now, pause a second here. If you're, if you're a medical professional here, you understand this. We have what we call heart sink patients. You walk into your surgery on, on Monday morning, and there they are again, and your heart sinks. Because, like, they just come and unload all your burdens. If you're GP, you know this all too well. And you can't carry their burdens. And they, it exhausts you just hearing the same story every week. And one or two of them can ruin your whole day. Jesus Christ looks at the heart sink patients of all the world and all the ages of all the histories of mankind, and all the continents and all the kingdoms. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Any man said that who was not God, he is nuts or a poached egg. But Christ did say that, and He is offering that to everyone. He is God Himself. Sorry, my doodah's fallen off again. Back on. And the biggest hurdle to my mind, this idea, right, that a bunch of fishermen made up Jesus— that's, that takes great faith. Gordon Wenham, the New Testament scholar, says this. This is wonderful. To one who has been captured in heart and mind by the Jesus of the Gospels, there appears to be a host of reasons for believing in the authenticity of the Gospel records. 
to regard the great mass of gospel teaching as the creation of the early Christian community. So, the Christian community made it all up, right? To regard the great mass of gospel teaching as the creation of the early Christian community seems to posit a marvelous effect without a plausible cause. Here is what may be fairly claimed as the greatest literature of all time, yet supposedly created by the imagination of a rather undistinguished group of people. It seems far easier to suppose that the Jesus of the Gospels created the community than that the community created the Jesus of the Gospels. Is it conceivable that the church, the church, full of discouraged disciples who'd just seen their best friend and mentor butchered in Roman gibbet, that they created the Christ of history and were willing to die for something they knew was a lie, or is it more persuasive to believe that the Christ of history created the church and transformed her from weakness to strength by the power of the resurrection? And so when Paul says in Romans, or sorry, in Philippians 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. He's speaking about God taking the man Christ Jesus in his human nature and lifting the dust of the earth to the throne of God in heaven. That's the therefore in Philippians 2. Therefore, because he was the form of God and became the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. Therefore, what Paul is saying here is that in response to the Son's willingness to become nothing, the Son of God saying, I don't matter. I will become nothing. I will become a servant. The Son will become a slave so that slaves may become sons. Because of the Son's willingness to become nothing, the Father has reinstated Him to His rightful place as the sum and substance of everything. Therefore, God hath highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no higher king, there's no better name above every name, and there's no other Lord. There's only one Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Lord and Master of every second of time, every event of history, every demon in hell, every angel in heaven, every man, woman, boy, and girl, saint or sinner who ever walk on the face of this planet. He is the Lord of them all. And He is weaving it all together so that history finds its ultimate terminus in the glory of His Father. And by hook or by crook, One day or another, you, each one of you here now, willingly or unwillingly, gladly or sadly, 
you will bow the knee and you will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if that is true and it is true, why won't you do it today? Maybe you're here this morning, you're, you're as yet an unbeliever. Maybe a covenant child of this church. Your parents drag you and you're thinking, no, it can't be true, it can't be true. And you're looking back and thinking, oh, no, these are very, this is very plausible. I can really see, you know, these Roman myths about men becoming God and so forth and so on and, and all of that. Roman, in Roman myths, yes, men became God. But they're the kind of men who crucified their enemies as slaves. Not the kind of man who became a slave to be crucified by his enemies to save them. That message has turned everything that is noble and just and good in the heart of Western civilization is rooted and grounded on that. The Romans, the Gentiles, the Greeks, they abandoned the poor. They felt they were cursed of God. Why help the poor? You're just getting in the way of the gods who are cursing them. Even I was talking to Jim earlier on in the FIFA World Cup, the, the, the Qatar authorities bust in essentially slaves to build those great football stadiums. And hundreds of slaves, perhaps thousands, I forget the number, died building. They were worked like dogs until they dropped dead and were just cast out. They bust them in, they bust them back out again. That's what the Muslims do. That's what the Chinese do. They treat people like things they can use. Only at the cross do you find God coming down to become a thing, to be used, to pour himself out, to give himself up, to lay himself down as a cursed thing to rescue poor sinners like you and me. There's no other message in all the world like that, and there's no other message lends dignity to the poor and the downtrodden of society. And all that is noble about Western civilization comes from this message. Even liberal historians like Tom Holland are admitting that. His whole book, Dominion, is recognizing that. Maybe you're still looking for excuses. You're like a dear friend of mine. I spoke to you recently about the gospel, and they don't come to this church, but I was talking about the gospel, and I, and I said to them, you know, they said, well, everybody knows, you know, that the, 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 one of the central teachings of Christianity is you should not judge other religions. I'm thinking, I don't think that's true. I do this for a living. I don't think that's true. No, it's in the Bible. I said, can you show me where in the Bible? I don't read the Bible, but you do. I'm thinking, well, this is really good. You make up a Bible verse, you let it say whatever you want it to say, and you bring it forward as thus says the Bible to prove your argument. Uh, (laughs) You know how desperate you have to be. It's like that guy, W.C. Fields, the famous actor who was, I think, an alcoholic. He said once that a woman drove me to drink, and I never had the decency to thank her, he said. But he he loved alcohol, did not love God. But he was found one day reading the Bible, and one of his friends said, you're reading the Bible? I'm surprised. He goes, no, I'm not reading it. I'm looking for loopholes, he said. Maybe that's what you're doing. No, Jesus Christ, he can't be Lord. There's got to be a loophole somewhere, some reason I can, I can deny this book. 
I'm telling you, you might find a loophole today to satisfy your unbelief, but you will find no loophole on the last great day when Christ appears and you see him. And you bow the knee before him and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you will do it that day. Why not this day? You'll come to Jesus and submit to him. The very fact you're looking for loopholes, you're still examining Jesus, you're questioning him. The sign you will know when you see him, you become like Isaiah when he saw Jesus. And he said, he stopped examining Jesus and he began realizing that Christ is examining him. And he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. I need to be redeemed. I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. What about you as Christians this morning as I bring this sermon to a conclusion? What's this passage say to you? number of things. First of all, in God's economy, the way down is the way up. God has one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. And some of you are going down in your experience at the moment. You're, you're discouraged. You're, you're downcast. There's problems in your life. Maybe you've had a bad report from the doctor, or your wife's got a bad report from the doctor, or... Um, you just things are unraveling, and, you, and you're going through suffering and trial and difficulty, and you're going. You think I can't cope, and Jesus says that's the way God treats His sons. The way down is the way up. It's through humbling ourselves. It's it's through refusing to fight for our own way and and becoming humbling ourselves, admitting we're wrong at times. I have no time to go there, but James 5, James 4, 10, and 1 Peter 5, both passages speaking about young men struggling to submit to their elders, or people fighting and squabbling for what they want in their relationships. And both of them, Peter and James, say, humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. For God resists the pride, but He gives grace to the humble. And so often we're fighting for what we want me, myself, and I. I matter. My rights matter. You'll not speak to me. How dare you treat me that way, we say in our marriages and so forth and so on. How dare you? I am worth more than that. And Philippians 2 takes you to the hand of Jesus, to Jesus Christ to the cross, and he says, look at him. He was worth more than that. And he made himself nothing. And afterward, God made him everything. And it's the same for all of God's children. As you make yourself nothing now, as you admit to say, I was wrong. I was counseling someone this week, and they'd been in an argument and said some terrible things to another dear Christian friend, and they couldn't bring themselves to apologize because their friend was more wrong than they were, and they were frightened. If I apologize, they'll think it's all my fault. And I said to them, they might do. It's happened to me more than once. They may think it's all your fault. But you'll be right before God. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, and in due time, He will exalt you. The way down is the way up. And this picture also shows you where Christ is as you're going down into the depths. And some of you are, and you're discouraged, and you're saying, the darkness is all around me, I can't see. And Jesus says to you, I know how you feel. There's one at the right hand of the throne on high. You can remember being lost in the darkness. 
unable to grope his way to God, feeling abandoned, cut off, hopeless, helpless. He's, he's been there. He's not forgotten. Time writes no furrows on the brow of the Almighty, and has, there's no Alzheimer's disease in the mind of Christ. His mind is sharp as a tack, and he can remember the feeling of abandonment and discouragement. And whenever you're discouraged, he is there not just somewhere in heaven, but at the highest place of heaven. And at the highest place of heaven, He's praying for you, for you by name. Oh God, let His faith not fail. Oh God, be her strength, her help in tight places, always close at hand. I know how she feels, Father. And in praying for you, the writer of the Hebrews says, He's able to save you to the uttermost. And also, Paul, showing you yourself one day, for when this great Christ returns, you shall see him and you shall be like him. The grave will be the way down for almost all of us here unless Christ returns. We're going to the grave. And it'll be a bleak and dark earthly moment when we die. The grave wasn't the end for Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead, which means he's not the lastborn from the dead because there'll be a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth born. You're all going to come from the grave one day and you will see him and you'll be like him when you meet him in the air and you will sit with him on the throne at the pinnacle of the created existence and everything will be beneath you in Christ because Christ is yours and yours is Christ's and It'll all belong to you. And thinking about that, I need to stop, but thinking about that is really the answer to your insecurity. You know, Churchill said about, um, oh, his his, his successor, um, um, anyway, no, not Chamberlain, but uh, the one after came after him, Apley, thank you. My brain's crashing this morning. My name sensor's gone to pot. You all know that, though. But um, <laughs> what was his name again? One more time. Clement Attlee. Thank you. It wasn't Apley. Attlee. Clement Attlee. An empty, an empty taxi drove up to, to 10 Downing Street, um, Churchill said. They opened the door, and um, Attlee walked out. Um, he was a very humble man who had a lot to be humble about, he said. He was a sheep in sheep's clothing. Uh, Churchill was just a genius at those kind of point put downs. But maybe the devil sits on your shoulder and says, you're a very humble man, an awful lot to be humble about. And in yourself, that might be true. But the answer to almost every problem in life and in the Christian life is to get out of yourself and into Christ. And in Christ, there's no longer anything humble about you. You're destiny is one of glory and significance. Not what men think of you down here, but what God and Christ and the angels think of you up there. Now you are a son of God, and it does not yet appear what you shall be. But when he appears, you shall be like him, for you shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. If you want to be on the right side of that great divide when all men bow the knee, bow the knee today and say, 
no more to sin, no to self. I'm going to draw a line in the sand, and by God's grace, I'm going to press on, and not sinlessly, but sincerely, take every thought captive, every word captive, every deed captive, every emotion captive, to the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, for Jesus. He is indescribable. And we all do, especially me, O Lord, we do such a shoddy job of living up to him. Send the Holy Spirit to help us, O God, that we might be more of Jesus and less of me and less of all these dear people in our hearts, in our homes, and in this church. For the glory of Christ, we pray and the glory of the Father in him. Amen.